Hi, and welcome to Leading with Purpose. My name is Dennis Morton. I'm co-founder and principal of Morton Brown Family Wealth. I'm a veteran, an entrepreneur, and a certified financial planner. And in my path to business ownership, I've encountered a lot of leaders over the years and had conversations with them about what it means to lead in their unique industries and from their unique perspective. For example, I was a background in history, I shot Patriot missiles for a number of years, and now I help lead a financial firm. So this is part of our continuing conversation that we have with our friends who encounter leadership in their daily actions and really embody it. And it's our contribution to a continuing conversation in our community about how to become better leaders. So I'm really happy today to have with me Cheryl Dahl, Senior Business Advisor with Compass Point here in the Lehigh Valley. And Cheryl is in a role where she advises family-owned businesses on strategic planning and leadership development. Cheryl's a doctor of education and comes to Compass Point with over 20 years of experience in higher education. Her job is to help leaders develop lifelong learning habits in their teams and also to align the business owner's vision with the goals of the business in order to set the conditions for success. So Cheryl, thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate you making the time. How are you? I'm happy to be here. Uh, doing good considering what's going on, but uh, you know, enjoying life in quarantine as best I can and happy to still be working with my clients. It was timely that we started having this conversation a couple of months ago because I think we were talking about those crucible moments that leaders come into, especially in family business. And now you just have this common crucible that everyone's in. So for someone like you, I can imagine it's a leadership laboratory that you get to work through with clients. Tell us about how that's been going of late. Sure. Uh, and yes, I would wholeheartedly agree. Um, you know, everyone's kind of working through a lot of the same challenges and, you know, through those challenges, you teams can kind of go one of two ways. They can kind of become more distant with their leader or they can come together and come together around a common goal, which in this case is everyone's common goal, which is to succeed through um, through this crisis. So yeah, it's been it's been a roller coaster. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm happy to say um, myself and my other colleagues from Compass Point have been working very closely with all of our clients. Um, through all of this. And, you know, we have some clients that are completely shut down. We have some clients that are partially working and we have some clients that are working, you know, more than they ever have. It's certainly something that is testing a lot of leaders, including, you know, the, our clients. And, you know, what we're finding is that there are a lot of leaders right now that are looking to serve uh, and, you know, serve in the concept of, you know, being a true servant leader. So wanting to um, really serve first and then lead second and really put the needs of their followers. So in this case, their employees or their communities, um, you know, above their own. So we do have a few clients that have, you know, almost pivoted in a way to be true servant leaders and that all they're doing right now is trying to serve their community and do it, you know, in the most altruistic sense. And then, you know, we have some that are just trying to figure out how to um, work their way through this crisis and see what happens when they're able to reopen their manufacturing facilities um, because they've had to furlough all of their workers. So, I mean, we've experienced all different types of leadership going on right now. Um, we have a lot of leaders that are experiencing for the first time having to lead completely virtually. 
So that in, in and of itself is um, a challenge for some, especially for those who aren't used to video conferencing or Zoom or anything like that. And What are they discovering for, for those who might have challenging business models or for, you know, to, to lead virtually? What are they having to learn on the fly? What are they discovering about communicating with their team in this virtual environment? I think... It, and again, you know, I have experiences with different clients and, and I think about I have one client in mind where they, they in a way were ready for this, not that they knew this was coming, but they moved pretty quick to the virtual platform and um, we were working with them. It was kind of early on, but I really spent a lot of time talking about making sure you're having daily huddles and weekly meetings and, and they moved right from in-person to virtual and never really um, missed a beat. And their virtual meetings were very similar in that they still discussed their metrics, what numbers are they meeting, what challenges do they have, um, you know, what does the next week look like? So they were fine. But then I have other clients where once they went virtual, they kind of lost not just the rhythm of the meetings, so they weren't having as many meetings because of the technology, but also their meetings kind of went to more of like a report out. So, you know, this is what's going on rather than here are our numbers. This is what we need to hit. And not necessarily that that was because of the technology. I think they were so in crisis mode that they wanted to have a meeting to, to see everyone and they weren't really sure what that meeting looked like. But through working with, with them, obviously, we've kind of pushed them to get back into their normal routine where they're talking more strategically and, and not just doing report outs. Um, which has helped them see past next week. Sure. And then the other thing is really just that that connection. It's different when you're connecting virtually and there's definitely a different type of fatigue. So we spend a lot of time talking about that um, at, at Compass Point, just the, the fatigue right. of being in this virtual space and the different mental energy that you need is, you know, sure. finding a lot of us exhausted after, you know, two or three virtual meetings where if this were in person, it would be no problem. Right. So, so tell me about the the fatigue side of it. So there's a lot of you know, business owners are a vigilant type. They're always on the lookout for kind of what's coming down down the line. Things are moving pretty fast and furious. What are some coping mechanisms? Because not being fatigued sometimes isn't enough. In order to show up for your team, you need those, those energy levels. How are they maintaining energy levels or that up. Yeah, um, I'm so glad you brought that up because one of the themes I've seen over the past few months and, you know, in my coaching, in speaking with other coaches in my organization and is that whole balance, the work-life balance, but in a different sense in that, you know, people are drained from spending hours online. And I'm noticing a trend in that the conversations between leaders and their, you know, their employees have become more human in a way. And I don't know how else to say it, but, you know, I know for Compass Point, my colleagues and I, every morning in our daily huddle, it's not just what were the successes from the day before and what do we have going on for the day and what were our numbers, but, you know, how are you? How are you mentally? And then uh, another coach that I work with, does this great thing at the end of the day. So the morning they have, he and his team have a daily huddle that's more kind of tactical, but at the end of the day at five o'clock or whatever, they have more of an emotional mental huddle where it's like, okay, 
How are you feeling mm. after the last eight hours of work? And they get those kind of emotions out. So they're able to kind of close the book on the day and then spend the rest of their day with their families or doing whatever in their personal time. So it um, alleviates bringing the energy and the emotion from work into the, into the evening. But really just, you know, taking care of yourself mentally is something I've been doing, working on a lot with my clients. And that goes back to my um, video I had done early on during all this on Maslow's hierarchy and, and making sure everyone mm -hmm. is really trying to meet their kind of safety and health needs so they're able to think more critically and, you know, get to the top of Maslow's hierarchy in terms of self-actualization. Um, you know, you have to ensure that you're meeting those lower level needs so you can fully use that mental energy towards your work. Now, I want to get into that because you and I have touched on um, the hierarchy mm -hmm. before, but one, one of the areas that I hope there, there's, if there's positives to be drawn out of this, one of the great developments is along the lines of humanness. And you asked that question. Some of the best leaders I know are really good at asking people, how are you doing really? And, and, and getting by there, not accepting the cursory, I'm fine as an answer for their team members. And if we're all in a better habit of asking that and knowing that we can, you know, bring that more vulnerable per version of ourselves to the table, I think that could be a very positive development for some of these teams and, and really make them even more high functioning than they were pre-crisis. Because, you know, you can't, you can't pretend like someone isn't coming into the, the, the Zoom meeting with a lot more baggage than they were a couple months ago. And we just don't know what that is. Acknowledging that many times is a, is a big step in the right direction. Uh, completely agree. <laughs> and it's, it's almost become a part of every workshop or every coaching session I do. It's not the how are you, it's even using like a simple assessment, like where are you on this timeline of, of mental health or mental distress? Um, I use them, you know, in workshops where people just kind of say, this is where I'm at. It's like going in, when you're in the hospital and they have the, the faces, the sad face and the smiley face, where are you on this continuum? Right. Um, just to get like a pulse check. But then um, we, and when I say we, Compass Point, definitely have some other questions we ask that isn't how are you? Because, yeah, it's pretty simple to go, oh, good, you know, great, or, you know, just as expected. Um, but it's like, how are you feeling after this eight hours of work? And what's something that's really been, you know, nagging at you or trying to kind of pinpoint mm -hmm. and be a little bit more specific. You know, I really need my clients on their mental game. So sometimes we have to take some time and help someone work through a problem that's keeping them from moving on mentally. If mm -hmm. I do that litmus test at the beginning of a workshop and someone's really in a bad place, then I'm not just going to be like, okay, that's great. We're going to move on. It's going to be, wait, you know, let's work as a right. group and figure out how to best help to get your mental energy in the right place. So now Maslow's hierarchy of needs, pull this forward into the work that you do with clients. When you talk about that concept, how familiar is it to your audience? How, how do you kind of make that part of the conversation? Because it's the pyramid, it's, it's very fundamental, but it's so often overlooked by, you know, all those alphas out there. I bring it because I bring it to the table because of my experience in education. Maslow's hierarchy is something, you know, you ask any teacher and they know what Maslow's hierarchy is because they know that if their students aren't able to access food or they're homeless, 
there's no way they're going to be able to understand long division. So I brought that kind of from my realm of, of education and into this, you know, business space, but it's very much applicable. What I do with my clients, right. you know, it's coaching, but it's, it's educating and there's no way they're going to be able to fully comprehend and process what I'm discussing with them in terms of how to fix their cash conversion cycle if they're worried about their spouse not having a job for the last two months and where they're going to find money to buy groceries to feed their family of six. So when, when, these, when these stressful times come and you're working with family businesses, are you finding that there's a common need or desire that that's not being met? I don't necessarily know that there's a common thread. Uh, I, I can certainly say every family business is unique, but there are certainly some themes you see, sometimes things that go overlooked. When it comes to the owner, we spend a lot of time talking about, you know, what does your next chapter look like? And usually the theme is there isn't a lot of thought put into that. And I don't necessarily know that <laughs> that has much to do with the hierarchy of needs, although you could argue the whole concept of belongingness um, and relationships you know, mm -hmm. an owner working in a business yeah. for the last 30 years has a lot of belongingness there. And there's a lot of people that rely right. on him or her. But what happens when that owner steps away and moves on to the next chapter? Where is that belongingness going to come from? Where is that, you know, those relationships going to come going to come from? A lot of it just revolves around relationships, relationships with the family who work in the business, who don't work in the business. There's, there's mm -hmm. a lot, there's a lot there that would take many more hours to talk about. Sure. And I think it's a really useful construct to apply to business because so much of the, the role of a leader is an identity and who, who am I relative to this organization? Who am I relative to these people? Mm -hmm. And to physically space yourself from those and then to create that sense of, you know, do I need to be someone different in this environment than I used to be? Even for somebody who was on their path to that self-actualization, this can create a little bit of a vacuum. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, Definitely you, you think about, you know, a business owner spending 80 plus hours working on the business in the business, a lot of, you know, value and, and persona is associated with that business. So then when you leave that business and you move on, it's almost like this empty hole and, and how do you fill it? And how do I get back to that kind of, level of self-actualization when, you know, there's this feeling of valueless, of, of longing and not belonging, and it's a journey. And um, I, I, I think a theme there is with owners, there's not nearly enough thought put into what that next part of the journey is, because really it was, you know, it was always thought of, okay, well, I'm done with the business. I'm going to retire kind of as an endpoint, not as the beginning of a new journey. We like right. to spend a lot of time talking about that just because the more clear that journey for, uh, with the next chapter looks to the owner, the more likely they are to get out of that ownership seat and have the next generation, you know, kind of come in and, and start on their path. That lack of a, of a compelling vision on the other side, that, that is an impediment to the next generation gaining experience and, and taking the reins. Tell, tell me how that's, how is that playing out? How are you seeing succession conversations 
developing in recent months? Oof. <laughs> um, they're quite varied right now. Um, I obviously, you know, have owners that had planned to vacate, you know, in the coming year that said, all right, well, I've, I'm, I'm sticking around for a few more years. And then I have others that were planning on, you know, stepping away and they're still planning on doing so. But the generation coming in is now a bit scared and timid considering what they're walking into. So, I mean, the conversations are all very varied. You know, now I think about another client who's got a very young leadership team who um, were kind of working just on that leadership side, not so much on the succession side yet, but, you know, they're all working together through this crisis. And I, I wonder if the owner thinks that his leadership team is going to be ready sooner than he thought because they've come together and they're working really well now through this crisis that maybe he can get out sooner than he thought because he's really seeing their leadership skills in action. So, um, so again, very varied, um, but there's definitely some owners that were thinking about, you know, vacating that seat that they're, they're not going anywhere right now. And I think it's also just because, you know, this is, this was their livelihood. This is their legacy. They're going through crisis. You know, they, they don't want to abandon ship right now. They want to see it through and, and make sure that legacy still sticks. For those of us who are not leaders in, in family businesses, what can we learn from some of the, the best that you've observed, the best that, that, you know, Compass Point's been working with family businesses for many years now. What are the traits that uniquely executed well in the family business sphere that would be telling for us who aren't in that sphere? Family businesses that do it well are willing to have those crucial conversations And it's harder, I think, in a family business to have those crucial conversations because because you're, you know, for all intents and purposes, um, if you're not in a family business and you have to have some serious conversations, you don't have to worry about having sitting down for Thanksgiving dinner with these people the next week. Right. Right. So the families that are really doing well are are able to have those crucial conversations and then still go home and still be family members. And even more so, they're learning how to have those conversations as a business and then taking what they've learned into their families and having better conversations as families. So at Compass Point, our whole goal is to create and help build these, you know, these strong family businesses that then help build um, strong families to help carry that legacy. And not necessarily, you know, specific to family businesses, but I'm a big proponent of strong execution. The clients that are doing it really well are are executing really well in that they've got a really good meeting rhythm. So they're having daily huddles, they're having weekly meetings, they're having monthly meetings, and the daily huddles are really focused on the the day-to-day, focused on the metrics. The weeklies are looking a little bit more strategic. The monthlies are all about strategy and looking at the finances. They can see how things have changed and how they're able to kind of um, get away from the day-to-day and, and find time to work on that strategy side, to work on the business. They're, they're definitely seeing some success, even through all of what's going on. What about, tell me about culture inside family business, because there's, I think every, every family has its dynamic and its culture. 
And then you, you, again, you talk about what kind of passes back and forth between the family organization and the business organization. What can you tell us about family business culture and what does that look like now in times of crisis? What, what kind of percolates? I have a couple that come to mind as soon as you said that. So culture can be very different from business to business, but I will say when you're dealing with family businesses, not to be cliche, but more often than not, one of their values or part of their culture is family. So they see their employees as an extension mm -hmm. of their family. And some of those clients had a really hard time with everything that's going on because they didn't want to have to lay off. They didn't want to have to furlough. But a lot of them were able to take advantage of the PPP loans and, and are, were able to kind of start bringing, you know, if they were furloughed, they were able to bring everybody back and they didn't want to lose a single person. I will say that they, you know, they fought to keep that, that family intact. So that, that played a crucial part, like that whole core value of, of being a family. And then those family businesses that were really good on the communication side, I think they, they thrived. They were communicating with their employees daily, if not multiple times a week, you know, just helping them, helping their employees through this time of uncertainty by just giving them any information. Even if it was just to say, look, we have nothing new to report. We just want you to know that, you know, we're working hard to get everybody back as soon as we can. And then I had, you know, others that weren't really great on the communication side and it kind of got them sidetracked. So that's mm -hmm. kind of the, you know, the, the negative side of, of poor communication when it comes to a company's culture. Those are just kind of two examples. A company's culture and their values is, is what they're making decisions on um, right now. That's how they're making decisions. They should be making decisions, at least. And I've heard you talk about values before, and then the exercises that you guys do are really compelling to, to kind of probe on that and, and put the right language around the values that, that embody. And culture, I think, gets misused sometimes where it becomes more about what we've always done versus who we've always been, that type of thing. It's, it's the, the, and that's where you get stuck. Well, we don't do it that way versus what are the values of a company that tries to accomplish this? What, what do we embody in, in who we are, not what we do? And that's, I think that's a big pivot point for, um, for any organization defining culture. Yeah, I, you know, and it's funny because I don't even use the word culture that much anymore because it can be misconstrued, like you said. Um, I love mm -hmm. doing the work around the values because, you know, we explicitly state when we're working with an organization around their values, this is not who you want to be. This is who you are right now. This isn't what you aspire to. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, how you're living today. So the, the behavior you're modeling, these right. are your values. So um, I think that's crucial. And a lot of organizations don't get it right. And they have all of these aspirational values. And then and you, when you don't see them being lived by the organization, especially in the leadership, you're not embodying these values. You're not modeling the right behavior. So that's where things can get a little sticky. Yeah, we just did our, our team that it's, uh, we called it our offsite offsite, our quarterly offsite uh, meeting on Friday. But since it's already offsite, we all just went to different rooms of our houses than we usually meet from. So it's not really unique and different. But, but we, we did that yesterday and we talked through some of, the, some of the values. And it's it's funny how it does become, it, it makes anything that runs contrary to it stick out in sharp relief. And, and that if you can 
if you can settle in on those and you have to be, you're right, open to not the aspirational stuff. You can't be talking about eventually we want to become this. Well, that, that's not really it. Um, we can work towards the best, the best versions of ourselves, but let's recognize where we are right now. Mm-hmm. Another thing I've, that I've heard you discuss before I want to dig into is SWOT analysis <laughs> and the importance of doing that not just once and done or not, not, not an annual thing, but really revisiting SWAT mm-hmm. from time to time. Can you, can you talk through why that's important? Sure. Um, and now more than ever. So if you couldn't tell, I'm very much a strategy person. That's really my, my life's work is really around that kind of structure, that strategy and, and executing on good strategy. And SWAT's a great example of that. Um, and I've been actually doing a lot of these, you know, with organizations prior to this crisis, but I've been doing a lot of them now over the past two months. And so SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, strengths and weaknesses being obviously internal to the organization, and they can be controlled by the organization to a point, opportunities and threats, external, can't control them, either you mitigate them or you, you find an opportunity and you go with it. So right now, what might be an opportunity today for an organization might not be tomorrow based on government regulations, based on when the state is opening. Um, Same thing with threats. Even like even internal strengths and weaknesses, they change based on who's on your team. They change based on where you're working from. Uh, you know, we found at Compass Point, we have, you know, we've uncovered some new strengths because we've been working remotely that we want to be proactive about. So my recommendation for organizations is during this time to look at a SWOT weekly and um, to do a SWOT in general on the organization, but then really do some focus SWATs. So focus a SWOT on your organization's customers. What are your strengths as an organization in relationship to your customers? What are your threats? What are your opportunities? What are your weaknesses? Um, Same thing with your employees, your workforce. What strengths do you have as a workforce? What opportunities are there right now, which for a lot of organizations are, are pretty great because talent management was a huge issue a couple months ago and finding great talent was a huge issue. And right now, you know, there's an opportunity for some organizations to pick up some really strong talent. So a SWOT on your employees, a SWOT on your customers, and a SWOT on operations or resources, you can really kind of focus in um, and get really detailed. And, uh, and then my suggestion after that, because so you do this SWOT analysis, right? And then what do you do with it? Go through and you read through each of your strengths and your weaknesses and your opportunities and your threats. And you go, okay, this is good to know, check it off and move on. Or is this something we can take action on right now and make, you know, an actionable item list and assign accountability and then kind of work through each of those areas on a weekly basis. Turning a lot of what we're talking about is, is very much engagement and making sure there's communication with your team. There's assessing the, the, the strengths and weaknesses, opportunities and threats. There's a lot of looking outward and looking uh, toward the, externally toward the team around you if you're a leader. But let's turn it inward for a minute. Lonely at the top is a cliche for a reason. And there has to be that ability for, for good leaders to turn inward and reflect on what am I doing well? Where are my areas to improve? What are some ways that 
you know, especially in a circumstance like right now, when you're under stress, when you're feeling like things are moving very quickly and you're balancing strategy and tactics, but you have to assess how am I doing? How can I continue my learning curve, continue my personal growth? What are your recommendations for leaders who continue that journey even during times like this? Um, that's a really good question and not necessarily one that I have kind of just an overarching or, you know, kind of general answer for. I think it, it's somewhat dependent on my client that I'm working with. And I think it goes back to, you know, those hierarchy of needs. Um, and, you know, if I were working with a client that's burnt out, that's working nonstop, that's just all in, you know, crisis day to day, pivoting or whatever, um, there's certainly going to be a conversation on what are you doing for yourself? We are a learning organization and I, you know, I come from education. So professional development and um, continuous learning is a huge part of, of who I am and, and the work that I do with my clients. So um, we're big readers uh, at Compass Point. So we always encourage um, reading business books. We, you know, when we work with our clients, we recommend books. We do kind of book clubs um, with our clients to get them reading and really discussing what they're reading. Every time I'm talking to a client now, it's how is the business and, you know, how are you outside of the business and what are you doing to take care of yourself, you know, both physically and mentally. I enjoy that, that part of the coaching um, because, again, it builds that, that rapport, it builds that strong client relationship. You know, Lencioni talks about vulnerability when you, you deal with coaching, really being vulnerable. And, and I can say, you know, to a client, like, it's not been a good day. I'm not mentally in a great place because, you know, X, Y, Z, I'm trying to homeschool a child and my husband was furloughed. And, you know, so my mind is on those, those things, but this is what I'm doing to kind of get myself back in the game. You know, I run and clear my head and I listen to a podcast and, you just have to figure out what your thing is. And that's what I think people have a hard time determining. I think it's very personal what helps you kind of clear your mind and, and get your head in the game. You know, for me, going for a 40-minute run is what I need. Really working with clients to kind of help them figure out what their thing is to take care of themselves mentally and physically. And certainly reading books, podcasts, I send a lot of just kind of journal articles or blogs to, to kind of help provide more right. background on a concept or something like that. The last couple of weeks, especially, I think one of the biggest changes for me, I, I live in a very information-driven profession. So there's, there's always news breaking, stock market news, economic news, and the temptation is to follow that data all the time. And over the last couple of years, I felt like I built up a pretty good mental model or framework that allowed me to filter that out. And, you know, I would, I would read a lot at the end of the day, instead of front loading information at the front of the day, mm -hmm. at the top of the day, I'd do more writing and, and my own creating at the beginning. But with everything moving so fast in the last two months, I started taking in information all the time. And it was something that I wasn't accustomed to. And a couple of weeks ago, I had to reset a little bit. And I thought back on, okay, what was another stressful time, maybe, you know, in starting up the business and, and some other periods of my life, and it's been long form reading. It's been a lot of books and, and, you know, personal growth podcasts along those lines. So I just started putting those more in my environment. I put some, my goal was to read more fiction this year. 
I scrapped that goal and pulled out some of the, the, the more um, personal growth type titles that I'd had sitting on the shelf. And that's helped to reset a little bit because, and, and I can imagine for those who maybe golf was their outlet or there was a social element that was their outlet, you have to have something else now. So what is it? And it's funny you mentioned um, Maslow is because one of the books that I've, I've been working through is, is a new book uh, you and I were talking about by uh, Scott Barry Kaufman called Transcend, which takes a lot of Maslow's unfinished writings and brings them forward in a really compelling way. And that, that's things like that have been um, very helpful to, to jar me out of the, the, the stasis that seems to be the temptation right now. And, and the fact that you're just, you know, again, going back to self-awareness, I think right now is huge because you were able to recognize, all right, I need to do something different. And just kind of helping clients realize that what worked before might not work right now. I was a big reader of, you know, just paper books. I can't right now. I cannot read. So I've gone to, to podcasts or now I'm back to listening to Audible, listening to that Transcend book. And one yep. thing I failed to mention, which I think mm -hmm. is, is really helpful right now, are peer groups. You know, really being in a peer group in some kind of mastermind where you're with, you know, in my case, you know, other business owners, other family business owners, really having kind of a group to just toss ideas out, get some problem solving help. I think those have been crucial. I, I feel like I'm in, I'm in a, quite a few and they've been very helpful when it's not something that I really want to just try and tackle by myself. It's it's so funny you mentioned that. But by, by the way, welcome to my mastermind group. This is this is how this is how we introverts do do peer groups. <laughs> we sit in rooms by ourselves yep. and, and call up our friends sure. and get the talk. Whatever works, so right? The, the, the financial industry is notorious for being siloed. So one of those things that that can be lacking sometimes is is kind of mentorship and an organizational structure. It's very fragmented. And I've said for years I, I want to make sure I have this mastermind group, albeit informal, but people I can reach out to and talk to. And that was what happened about a month ago. And I said, why don't I start recording some of these conversations and talking with people? That realization that you're not alone going through this is, is super important. I would, I would definitely advocate that. One other thing I want to probe on, I had a note down here on vulnerability when you're trying to bring your team together and that, and that humanness. I just want to come, come back to that a little bit to say, if a family business is envisioning the best version of itself coming out of this, you talked about vulnerability and more human conversations among team members. What are some other areas that a family business can envision the best version of itself on the other side of this crisis? Um, I, I mean, I think right now, especially if they weren't thinking about it before, which I hope they were, is really what that next generation of leadership looks like. You know, we, we work with family businesses and help them so they're ready when a disaster strikes or a death happens or something like that. So they're prepared because 50% of businesses transition um, not on your own plan. So we try and help family businesses ensure that when they transition, it's going to be on, you know, on their time and on purpose because they want it to transition. Right now, you know, we're, we're working really hard to ensure that people like business owners are really thinking about, all right, who's next in line. Even if, you know, you're five, 10 years out, you know, you have to think about all of that knowledge an owner has in his or her head and how are you going to get that out and 
and who is it going to go to, you know, that's not a quick process. And we spend years working to help build the next generation of leadership, especially knowing what's going on. The last thing I want is for, you know, the next generation of leadership to not be ready or as ready as they can be. So for sure, coming out of this, transitioning out of, you know, this into the new normal, um, really giving some, some hard thought on, you know, what does the next generation of leadership look like? What do we want, you know, our big business legacy to be? is crucial right now. And really, you know, for any business that's transitioning, you know, when you look at a val- the value of a business, the less the owner is the hub, when you're talking about hub and spoke, the, the better the value of the business is. We want a business to be able to run without the owner. Um, we need it to run with, without the owner. So the more that owner can kind of disseminate that information, that knowledge, that experience to others, the better for the next generation and for the value of the business. That's so true. And we're hearing from the business owners that we work with, some of them who are within a couple of years of retirement, is that we, we joke that there's a rolling five-year plan sometimes um, with, with exit strategy. And a lot of them are saying, as you alluded to in the beginning, I'm working harder now than I ever have in my career. And, and you, there's, there's just, they're, they're an integral cog and they, and they need to quickly disseminate that information, responsibility, all, all of those things. And another benefit coming out of this is we're, we can't pretend anymore like the timelines are always going to be ours, mm-hmm. that the urgency isn't always going to be slow build urgency. There's a reason to, to try and build that into the, the culture of your, of your organization and the culture of your succession early on, because we just don't know. And also, I love your story about some teams are accelerating maybe their succession plans because they realize that their teams were ready. And it's a reminder that we're never fully prepared. You know, our, our successors will never be fully formed. It's always, that's why transition is, is a process that it's never too late to begin. The, the beginning part is important, not reaching some predetermined conclusion where we say, yes, now we're ready. Yeah. One of the, one of the first things we do with a client that's a family business is we ask them, do you have an emergency management plan? And more times than not, um, they don't. So I say, okay, well, what happens if you as the business owner, you know, don't show up to work tomorrow? What happens if your spouse gets sick? What happens if you get sick? What happens if God forbid there's a death? Like, does does the business keep going? You know, who calls the clients? What, who calls the vendors? Who has information on the bank and, and all of that? So I've done a lot of right. talking about this lately because of everything going on. And I think maybe this will get, you know, people more aware that, all right, I need to put something in place if for some reason, you know, I don't show up to work tomorrow. Um, and again, that goes back to the, to the value of the business. No one buying a business wants, you know, to buy a business that cannot run without the current owner. So the more you have that down on paper and people know what the plan is, the better. There's a lot of parallel in our professions with that too, because so often we sit across from a couple and the plan is fully formed. It's being well executed and it's all in one person's head. (laughs) But the spouse sitting next to them has no idea where, where that spreadsheet is located, mm-hmm. how many different accounts there are, who the, who's responsible for what, what the will even says. And a lot of work that we do is trying to unpack that a little bit and get it to a place where 
this is something where in case of emergency, you break the glass and here it is. Mm -hmm. You don't need to know everything, but you need to know who to call and where everything's located and, and get it down to as simple a plan as possible. Um, because we've seen the other side of it, and as, as I'm sure you guys have, if it's not in place, it can be catastrophic when that key person is no longer there. Very much so. Uh, COVID-19 is a situation that's, that's of, of no one's making. I mean, this is just a, it's a global event, but some of those situations are situations of our own making and being that indispensable person who suddenly is gone. And uh, to the extent we can mitigate that in business and in personal finance, it, it solves for so much heartache later on. Yep. <laughs> um, I, I have had clients where the entire formula for their product that they sell is in their head and they get sick and the entire business is gone. But it's how it was always done. You know, one person held the secret. Well, we can't have that anymore because we want to create a legacy. We want this business to continue. And that's one of the reasons I leaned into family wealth in the first, first place. And never forget leaving a piece of paper in the kitchen early in my career, meaning to give it to a client the next day. It was just an article that said the five things that every spouse should know about their personal finances. And my wife picked it up, read it, and marched into the living room, tossed it in my lap and said, how come I don't know the answers to these questions? Even, even coming from my angle, we've seen that before. A couple things just to, just to close out here. So what's the best part about working from home? What, what, are, you, what are you saying, boy, I'm really enjoying this now that I get to, you know, be in the same chair every day in the same place where I eat my breakfast. Um, I mean, you know, personally, I tell my colleagues every day how grateful I am that I get to have breakfast, lunch, and dinner with my family every day. I, I don't know many people that could have said that prior mm -hmm. to this. Um, so being able to sit at the dining room table and have breakfast, lunch, and dinner with my family is pretty awesome while, while I work. And really, for me, online work was was something that I've done for years. I've been an online instructor, mm -hmm. you know, as an adjunct since 2000, I think. So this is like, mm -hmm. this is my home. I love this. So I feel as though I'm, I've been more productive. I feel like I can, I can meet with more clients this way because I'm not traveling, you know, I'm spending more time doing work than I think I, I could have. That to me is great. And frankly, just the grace people are giving each other, you know, we talked about this before we started, you know, I've got a, a 10 year old that's trying to do school. You've got kids, you know, all over the house, but you know, I'm in meetings with people and their children are climbing all over them. And, you know, I just laugh and go, all right, well, that's what you're experiencing, but we're still doing the work. And I, I wonder, you know, right. that, that didn't happen before this. So to me, I think that's an amazing kind of humanistic product of, of working from home. That's, I love to use the word, the word grace there because we're, we're so hard on ourselves sometimes and we, we can, and that can lead over to being hard on the people around us, hard on our teams, but giving yourself a pass to start, say, listen, you can't get it all done. The, the plans that you had at the beginning of the year have at least changed. Give yourself a pass, give a break. Um, I know you're a music fan, as am I. Uh, what, are you, what are you listening to in the course of a day? Um, so I am a, I'm a podcast person in the mornings or a book. So getting ready. So I like Tim Ferriss. Um, I like Brene Brown. On the non-business side, I'm a big fan of um, Dax Shepard, who's uh, he's the armchair expert. And then Malcolm Gladwell. Okay. Yeah. Love yeah. Malcolm Gladwell. 
Um, but then music wise, I mean, the rest of the day is usually music for me. Um, so I'm a, I'm a metal fan. So I'm a big Devin Townsend fan. He's a Canadian metal guy, um, who has the most amazing voice and writes rock operas and all kinds of cool stuff. So, um, listen to him a lot and really, you know, depend, it depends on the mood. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't say I listened to my husband's band. Fantastic. That's yeah, great. Really cool. But there's always music on where there's music on all, all day in this house. You were talking about where we are on kind of the continuum of the, uh, of the quarantine right now. So I moved from doing my usual softer jazz type stuff during the course of the day. And I was on a very heavy guitar kick last week. I, I put on my, my Spotify white noise <laughs> playlist, just humming behind me. So I don't know what that says for my, you know, frayedness <laughs> through all of this, but it's just a background hum is about all I need right now to, to keep me, keep me going. So she so mentioned podcasts. What about books? What's your most often recommended book? Ooh, um, biz, like business wise. Oh, you know, I use a lot of books with my clients. Um, the one that really struck me that I wouldn't necessarily say is a business book, but I recommend it for, you know, for all business owners and really anyone is the, the power of habit, Charles Duhigg. He, mm -hmm. yeah, I love how he just digs into kind of the science of habit and kind of the neuroscience behind it, but how businesses utilize the power of habit to, to grow and build their businesses. So I love that book. I tell a lot of people about that book. And then really for me personally is Brendan Burchard's um, high performance habits. So we're, we're a high performance mm -hmm. coaching organization. My colleague Cheyenne is a certified high performance coach. And I utilize Brendan's habits regularly, daily. It's how I, you know, find my focus, especially now. I'm glad you, you bring up that word focus, because I think that's, that's what we're all struggling with now is of all the things we, we could do, or even all the things we can't do, what should we be doing? And the ability to focus in and, and hone in on that, I think. Um, so we'll take that, uh, take that book recommendation. I'll add that to my audible list. Cheryl, so really appreciate you joining me for this, having a conversation. Um, how can people reach you? Uh, many ways. So, uh, website is compasspt.com. So C O M P A S S P T.com. Uh, email is cdoll at compasspt.com. You can find me on uh, LinkedIn as well. So you can look up compass point on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Really appreciate you joining me. This has been fun. I always like talking about these topics with you and I'm, I'm glad to kind of memorialize that in the show and, uh, we will catch up soon. Happy to be a part of it. Thanks so much. Morton Brown Family Wealth is an SEC registered investment advisor. More information is available at our website, www.mortonbrownfw.com.